So we're in this series that we've called Walking with Jesus, and the reason we're doing this series is because we feel that this is what we need as individuals and also us as a church. After all that's been going on and all the, the noise of life and the kind of the, the complexities and the issues and, the, you know, things happening in the church, in our lives, in the world, what we need is to spend time with Jesus, And so what we're doing is, uh, in a sort of a low-key way, we're saying, let's pull on our sandals and let's join the disciples and let's walk through a text in Luke's gospel and spend some time just watching Jesus in action, just seeing his character, seeing what he's like, seeing how he works. And actually, today, we're looking at a passage that Andy read to us, and at first glance, I don't know if you evaluate passages, maybe this is just a preacher thing, when I hear a passage read... Sometimes I think, oh, this is going to be a, you know, that's sitting up to be preached. Other times, as a listener, I go, ooh, that could be tough. And that was my reaction to this one when I first looked at it, because it's sort of, it's not really about a miracle. It's not Jesus telling a parable. It's not really anything specific other than this sort of conversation that happens between a couple of stories. But the more I've looked at it, the more I've become convinced that this passage is incredibly relevant for us. And this is a great passage for us to look at in this series. Last week, we looked at the first two stories at the beginning of Luke 7. It was the story of the centurion's servant who was on the point of death. And then there was the widow's son who had already died. And we saw Jesus' compassionate care, how he conquered death in both cases. And he did it Not just for the sake of the dead person or the dying person, but there's a real sense of his compassion for the person who cares, the centurion and then the widow. Just see him drawing alongside somebody who's grieving and care for them. It's a beautiful thing. And and so we see the compassion of Jesus to conquer death for the undeserving. And as we went through that story or those two stories, what kind of emerged was the fact that we do not merit Jesus' compassion toward us based on our own worthiness. It's not because we live a good life that Jesus will care for us, even though we always default to that and we think, you know, let's get our acts together and then God will smile on us. That's not the way it works. We also saw that actually, while it is by faith that we come to Christ, it's faith in Christ It's not about the faith that we can work up. And again, we fall into that so easily thinking that if I can kind of pump up some kind of extreme faith within myself, then I'm more likely to get something from God. That's missing the point. It's not our faith that we generate. It's what are we trusting or who are we trusting in? It's Christ. So it's not our worthiness. It's not our faith. And also we saw in both stories that while they had some idea about Jesus, they didn't have the whole picture. They didn't have full knowledge. And so again, it's tempting for us to think that if I could just know my stuff, if I could just have all the answers and the big words, if I could know everything there is to know about Jesus, then I would merit his kindness toward me. And I think that's a danger in church environments because there will be people in church who study more or have got degrees or who know stuff that you maybe don't know, and it's tempting to feel like, well, if I knew what they knew, then God would look favorably on me, but I don't know enough. 
And so actually it's not about how well we live our lives. It's not about how much we pump up and stir our own faith to some sort of a frenzy. It's not even about how much we know. Jesus comes and he cares for the undeserving. And really the issue is Jesus. Now having said that, I am going to suggest that there is one thing in us that does matter. And we're going to see what that is in this passage. There's one thing that is uh, worth considering about where we stand in respect to Christ. And we're going to see that. But even as we see that, it's always going to be about him. We're a church that want to see all transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. That's not just something that happens by some sort of mechanism. Really, the transformation is going to occur as we discover how glorious and how delightful the love of God is. And as we grow in that, we're going to find that our lives are are changed. We discover life to the full. We want to be a church that's growing in that direction all the time, coming to appreciate Jesus more and more. Now, here's the challenge. When we deal with a passage like this, and in fact, like all of them, it's a long time ago. It's 2,000 years ago. But I hope that what we're going to see today as we look at this passage is that actually it's relevant for us this week. So the passage is about John the Baptist and Jesus, these two key figures. Let me just give you a little bit of background about John the Baptist. Uh, if, If you're not kind of familiar with the Bible, you may have heard the label. But John the Baptist was a bit of a weird guy. He was called by God from really before he was born to be a very significant character in God's plan. Actually, he was uh, Jesus' cousin, and his ministry, his life goal was to be set apart to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And so, back in the day, before Jesus started his ministry, John began his, and he wore kind of camel skin and, and lived out in the wilderness, and he ate locusts and honey. It was all kind of, I think, designed to make you go, that's not normal. And then he started bellowing out this message in the wilderness and and he created a stir. People were rushing out from the city to go and and hear his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And and he was stirring the people up. And it was all to, to try to create a buzz so that when Jesus came, people weren't sleeping. So John the Baptist was this significant figure, but once his ministry really got going and all the people were coming, we read in John's gospel about the day when Jesus came. And John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed everyone to Jesus. He pointed his disciples to Jesus. And he he said, this is the one. And then he baptized Jesus and Jesus' ministry began. And John's ministry just seemed to fade away. In fact, he ended up getting arrested. He was uh, held in, in a cell for quite a long time. And, and at that point, in that kind of negative circumstance, John sent some messengers to Jesus with the question, are you the one that is to come or are we supposed to look for someone else? It seems like he's kind of struggling, doesn't it? It seems like this great man of God has questions, doubts, confusion. It could be that he just wanted to be reassured as he's there in that cell. It could be that, you know, the, the kind of the doubts are overwhelming him and he, 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 maybe he's confused. Maybe the way Jesus was doing ministry wasn't what he'd anticipated. 
Whatever the reason, John sent these messengers and they came to Jesus and they asked him, are you the one or is there somebody else coming? Jesus' response is, is really quite simple. Verse 21 tells us that in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And then he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And then he gives this list, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Go tell them that. And I suppose that the challenge for us as we read that is, well, a couple of things. One is just the distance of time. Time is a problem, actually, if you stop to think about it. We, we have a problem with time. In fact, we have two problems with time. One problem is that that was 2,000 years ago, and I'm living now, and so what? There's that kind of problem with time. And then there's the problem with time. If you've been to church for a few months or a few years, you kind of get used to hearing the same stuff, right? Lepers cleanse, the deaf hear. You know, it becomes normal. Now, I think that our radar should be beeping, the, the, the light on the dashboard should be going off as we read this. There should be a, a response, a reaction to it, actually probably two. The first one is the Old Testament reaction. That may be a little bit dull for us because we don't live in our Old Testaments, all the old books before Jesus came. But if we could take a USB thumb drive with the Old Testament on it and stick it into our brain and know the whole thing, this list would start flashing those lights, right? We'd go, whoa, look at that. That's that's the description of the coming Messiah. That's description of the the anointed servant of Isaiah 61, for example. that's, that's, That's him. And so there should be that kind of mental response if we were you know, really soaked in our Old Testament, that would be there. But it's the second response that maybe is, is even more concerning, is, is where the light doesn't flash, the, the light that has the little heart on it. I don't know what car you drive. Mine doesn't have a, a light with a heart. Thankfully, it has a light with a service engine, uh, which means I have no idea what. It just keeps going off. But imagine there's a light with a little heart on it, and it, it flashes. And this passage here, I think, should get our hearts pumping. The problem is time. 2,000 years ago, we don't know the people involved. It's familiar language. We've heard it all before. But imagine, imagine if you were there. Imagine if that was your brother or your, your mom or your child that had been trapped in, in the, the hopeless darkness of blindness for years, and then Jesus gave them sight. Imagine that was someone you knew who who had just been in the incredibly lonely, cavernous world of being deaf, and then Jesus came along and gave them ears that worked again. What would that be like? A leper who hadn't been touched for years, had been shunned by everybody, having to hide and stay away from the people, suddenly encounters Jesus, and Jesus reaches out and touches him, and Jesus' life and goodness is more contagious than that disease. And he's cleansed. And he can be hugged by his children again. Imagine if you were there. I think your heart would be exploding for Jesus, wouldn't it? 
wouldn't it be amazing to see the dead raised, the lepers cleansed, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the blind seeing? He'd be the talk of the town, wouldn't he? He'd be the one that we we go, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's doing, but I need to know more. I want to know more. We'd be captured and we'd be fascinated by him. And it's my prayer that, that God, by his spirit, would turn back on that little heart light on our dashboard. That as we read the scriptures, we would see Jesus and our hearts would explode with excitement at what he does. Actually, not just reading the scriptures, but watching life during the week. We believe that Jesus is risen, that he's alive. That means that he's at work today. We, we heard that great story from this week, how uh, Ben prays on Tuesday, then Paul inadvertently answers the prayer on Wednesday, and then Ben finds out about it on Thursday. That's, that's normal with Jesus. That kind of stuff is, is happening all the time. The problem is that our dashboards are kind of dull. We don't see that. We don't have eyes to see. Perhaps maybe our hearts are a little bit cold and slow to respond. But what if we could see? Maybe that would be a prayer we should pray. It's interesting that John's disciples come to Jesus and Jesus doesn't rebuke the question. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say, oh, goodness me, John, of all people, should know better. You go back and tell him not to ask silly questions. Jesus never does that. When people are asking genuine questions, he genuinely answers. When Thomas said, unless you know, I see his ha- the, the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe, Jesus didn't come and rebuke him. The risen Christ came and said, go on then, I want you to know very gracious, and and he's like that with us. And in a group this size, what, 30, 40 people, maybe there's 150 issues. Maybe you have five or six of them and someone else only has one or two, but there's there's a whole load of issues with Jesus, I'm sure. Is he really at work? Does he really care? Is he really good? What is he really like? And maybe it would be a good thing for us to pray, God, would you give us eyes to see how Jesus is at work this week in my life, how he cares for me, how he he wants to work in my circumstances, how he wants to take that which is broken and to make it whole. And if we had eyes to see what he's already doing, maybe our hearts would start to beat. Maybe our hearts might even feel like they're going to burst because we're growing in understanding who Jesus is and experiencing the richness of that now. It seems like a foregone conclusion, doesn't it? If you see Jesus in action, the response is going to be worship. The response is going to be celebration. The response is going to be joy. But notice what Jesus says at the end of the paragraph. Verse 23, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's weird. Why would anyone be offended by someone who does things that are so, so good? Let's hold on to that thought. Those disciples left, they went back to John with the message, and then Jesus turned to the crowd that was there, and he said, okay, let's talk about John since the subject's been raised. Why did you go out to see John? These were the people that had rushed out to hear him preaching in the wilderness. Why why did you go? Was it because he was uh, nicely dressed? No, you'd go to a palace for that, you wouldn't go out and see someone wearing camel skin. Was it just kind of because he was there? Of course not. He went because he was a prophet, and they all said, yeah, that's right, we went because he was a prophet. And then Jesus 
underline just how special John was. It's interesting that typically when somebody replaces somebody else, the default is to go, oh, he was nothing. I'm everything. You know, just kind of tear down to build self up. Maybe you've had a boss like that. You do the work. You know, you achieve a great thing. He makes you the idiot and he takes the glory. You know, that kind of people, they always seem to be bosses. Uh, uh, John, uh, John uh, had been this really significant figure and there'd been all, all the talk of the town and Jesus doesn't tear him down. Instead, Jesus builds him up. Verse 26, he says, you went to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And, and it's the book right at the end, uh, about 400 years before Jesus came. And as the Old Testament is kind of closing off, and it's like the curtains are coming down, and it's all dark, and you think, oh, when, when's the Messiah coming? This is desperate. Right in the midst of that, there's this promise that God is going to send his messenger in the future, he calls him Elijah, and it's kind of connections that make sense with John the Baptist. But I'm going to send my messenger. Let me read you the exact words that he uses. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what Jesus is saying. John wasn't just another prophet, he was the ultimate one. All these prophets through the years that had been preparing the way for the Messiah, he was the last and the greatest of them because he's the one that Malachi was talking about, which incidentally means that who's Jesus? Jesus is saying here, I am the God of the Old Testament coming into your midst. He's revealing something about himself. If John is that messenger, work out who I am. I'm not just another prophet. I'm beyond that. I am the God of the Old Testament himself stepping in. And so he builds John up. He reveals something of who he is. And then what do we have? He says, well, no one is as great as John, except, of course, everyone who's in the kingdom, everyone who believes in me, everyone who goes to Trinity Chippenham. They're greater than John the Baptist, which is kind of cool. We should probably memorize Luke 7, 28, because that says we're pretty special. And what he means by that is, as great as John was, what I've brought in is even greater. My fulfillment of all God's plans mean that those who trust in me are even more significant than John the Baptist himself. Nice little verse. But then again, at the end of the paragraph, we get another reference that doesn't quite sit true. It doesn't feel like it should be there. If John was this incredibly significant messenger, and if Jesus is God stepping into the world, then surely the response should be, woohoo, let's celebrate. But instead, Jesus makes it clear that there's two responses. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the uh, tax collectors too, I said, John, I meant Luke, Luke's writing here. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there's a twofold response. There's the sinners and the, you know, the kind of the riffraff, normal people who had celebrated John and they're going, yeah, if John's that significant, whoa, I got baptized by him. That's amazing. But then there's the religious leaders, their chests puffed out and their arms crossed and their chins like flint. They hated it whole thing. 
They rejected it. They despised it. And so there's this intriguing tension building. You've got people that are responding to Jesus and celebrating, and you've got people that are resisting, being offended, saying, no way. They resisted John. They're going to resist Jesus. And that's what Jesus brings out in this third paragraph. Let's look at it, verse 31. It's their response that is so critical. Jesus says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children in the marketplace sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Come back to that. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What? What is Jesus saying? He takes this little ditty that children might sing, uh, just kind of uh, mocking each other. I was just thinking that probably the the closest thing we would get today is football fans singing to each other. You know, in in, in global, I almost said British football, global football, you have uh, fans on one side and fans on the other side, and they're singing against each other the whole time. And if one team scores... Uh, Andy's team is currently winning, which is concerning me, but as his team scores, their fans would celebrate, and then maybe if my team would please score four right now, then my, the fans of my team would sing back, you're not singing anymore, and it would go back and forth. And maybe it was that kind of a little song. We played a happy song, and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral dirge, and you didn't weep. There's no response. And Jesus is using that little thing, that little ditty, and he's saying, hey, You know the problem with people? It's not that that John the Baptist, you know, they didn't like the way he did ministry, so the problem was him. The truth is they didn't respond to him and they didn't respond to me. It it wasn't the packaging that was the issue. He came as an ascetic. He wouldn't drink. he, He wouldn't mix with people. And they said he's got a demon. Jesus came and did the opposite. He would eat and drink and and mix with the people and the tax collectors and the sinners, and they'd criticize that too. Jesus says, you know what the issue is? The issue here is not, are you worthy? It's not how much do you know? It's not how much faith can you generate? The issue is whether or not you're responsive to me. Whether or not you respond to what I reveal. And it's not an issue of packaging. John the Baptist's packaging was the exact opposite of mine. You rejected him too. That's a very serious critique of the people. I suppose, just in passing, it raises a question for us because as a church, we've made quite a big effort in terms of the packaging of how we do church, right? We've, we've deliberately put thought into uh, how we have a welcome team and that we have refreshments before and after and, and trying to make uh, quite a bare room as, as you know, comfortable as possible. We've, we've put a lot of effort into that. Is that wrong if, if packaging isn't the issue? I don't think so. It would be wrong if we trusted that. But you see, the reason we've done that from the very beginning at Trinity is because we don't want anybody coming into this environment and then getting offended by some sort of tradition that we have or confused by something that doesn't make sense and then go away and reject Jesus based on how we were. We don't want that. Jesus is too important. 
That's why we've, we've done things the way we have. But it's not that we trust in the programs or the packages to achieve anything other than to give an opportunity for people to meet Christ. That's the desire. And the prayer is that as people hear about Christ and as they see Christ at work, as we love and care for one another, the hope is that people will be drawn to him. But that's not just for them out there. That's for us too. Do we have hearts that are responsive? Do we have eyes to see how he's at work? Is it true that today I find Jesus more compelling, more wonderful, more gracious, more kind and compassionate than I did a year ago? Do I have eyes to see how much he's carried me and cared for me and intersected with my life and my circumstances? That would be a good thing to pray for, wouldn't it? We can't manufacture responsiveness either. But I think we can pray for it. We can say, oh Lord, would you search my heart? Would you clear away the weeds? Would you, would you make it so that my heart is, is good soil? That's another image Jesus uses later on. Would you, would you give me a heart that is responsive to you? Maybe if we prayed that and we said, oh Lord, give us eyes to see maybe we'd see him at work now a little bit more than we do. And as we see him at work now, maybe we would grow to appreciate him even more. As we read the Bible during the week, and also as we see prayers being answered and see God's care for us, the little things, the big things. Ultimately, of course, Jesus went to the cross and ultimately, it's how we respond to that, the, the death, as he gave his life, the ultimate act of God's compassionate heart for us. It's our response to that that determines everything. If God can love me that much, surely I can trust him with this life. Let's pray. And let's just ask God for those two things. Eyes to see and hearts to respond. Father, we do very simply ask for that in our lives, in our circumstances, here and now, in this country, in this town, in this week, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see, eyes to see how Jesus is alive and Jesus is at work and Jesus is continuing to reveal how beautiful and how wonderful the love of the Trinity is. Lord, we pray that we'd have eyes to see that in our circumstances, in our interactions, in our Bible reading this week. And Lord, we pray even, even maybe more than that, that you would stir our hearts to be hearts that respond in the right way. May we never be cold to Christ. May we never be resistant or offended or just numb. Lord, give us hearts that will respond to the wonder of who you are. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.